They have this uh, reputation, perhaps because of creatures of the night, associated with some of these scarier things. There's myths about bats getting caught in hair, bats are blind, all these things that are just not true. And it's amazing when you do these workshops and things with people and we have live bats there, especially the microbats, which people are not expecting to see as such a small animal. They're amazed at how different the bats are to what they're expecting. And kids just love them. They are so attracted to them. They, you know, once you see a live one, it is, you know, it changes you. This is Annette Scanlon. She works at the University of South Australia, and she really loves bats. I'm a bat scientist uh, at the university, and I work on a range of projects, on conservation projects, on citizen science projects. How do you become a bat scientist? (laughs) Yes, great question. It's a random sort of job, and there was an opportunity to go out and trap bats, and I just said, that sounds interesting, and that was about 13 years ago, and I haven't stopped since. Once you see bats, hold them up close, they're just a a charming, uh, amazing, diverse uh, creatures. Annette works on the Mega Murray-Darling Microbat Project. She helps the public collect information on the habits of microbats living around their homes. We received a grant from the Australian government for a citizen science project to reach out across the Murray-Darling Basin region, so a large area of South Australia, to engage the community, to engage them as citizen scientists to go out and look for microbats, record them with special detectors, attend information nights, do a survey, collect data, record habitat on a phone app, and we're going to compile all this information and review the status of lots of species across these areas and look at the habitats that they're in, the habitats that they're absent from, and what we can do to enhance microbat habitat across a vast area. Why microbats? They're important. They're poorly known, often. So they're flying at night. They're silent to our hearing, mostly, and it's dark, so people are not always aware of these bats, even though they have they are diverse and interesting and have important roles. We even have a fishing bat called the large-footed myosis, and it trawls over water bodies with long toes and scoops up small fish to eat. So a really interesting group, and many of these microbats are endemic, and many of them are also threatened, and many of them we don't have sufficient ecological information about. Very little is known about the microbat population in South Australia. There are 16 known species living in the region, and Annette says there is no way they can get the information they need about what she calls the mega-important critters without the help of the South Australian public. Citizen scientists are key to this project. We couldn't access private properties on this scale and we couldn't do the surveys on this scale without the citizen scientists. So they're the ones that get out there and make it broad and representative for the entire region. Initially, it was the scientists thinking, oh, you know, that these data are not reliable or it's soft science or something like that. But those sorts of fears are being overcome now. We know that we can collect reliable data, we can engage these communities. So if we can build together with the community these ideas around why things are important, 
we can understand together these data that we collect, then you get support for policy that comes out of that. We have you know, stakeholders involved, so it makes the process more meaningful and, pro- and more applied. Certainly in my area of conservation, it's, it's really important to bring the communities along with you. Welcome to Think Sustainability. I am Miles Herbert. Citizen scientists have done everything from discovering species to documenting sea temperature changes. Just this year in Australia, amateur astronomer Andrew Gray, a mechanic from Darwin, helped scientists discover a whole set of new planets. But why are people like you donating their time to help scientists like Annette document and discover? And is crowdfunding the scientific method really trustworthy? Is publicly sourced information reliable? Today on the show, we take a look at the age of citizen science. My previous life, I was in business and and consulting and, and corporate life, and I reached a point where I realized that my my sort of other passion which was marine life (laughs) magpie getting fed this is John Turnbull he's the president of the underwater research group of New South Wales and a PhD candidate at UNSW so I started to reduce the amount of time I was magpie (laughs) go away <laughs> it's the baby of getting fed. Yeah. All right, so I'll try again. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'd spent most of my working life in the corporate world and a few years ago realized that I'd never really done anything with my with my real passion which was marine science and marine life. So I started to reduce my corporate work and started to get more into marine science. I sat down with John on a sunny morning overlooking the Sydney Harbour to ask him some questions about citizen science. We're sitting here at Sydney Institute of Marine Science in Chowder Bay at Mossman and it's a spectacular spot. We're looking out over the harbour. In the distance we can see South Head and round to our left is Middle Head and over here to the right is a place called Clifton Gardens which is one of the most popular places to go diving, right here in the harbour, because it's a very diverse spot. So under that jetty there, you'll find 20 or 30 different species of all sorts of invertebrates, crabs and nudibranchs and seahorses and pipefish, all sorts of things, right here in the middle of Sydney Harbour. The sun's out and the clouds are just clearing after a bit of a rainy morning. We were just watching a magpie here feed its young. And to think that we're in a city of 4.6 million people and we're looking out over those beautiful clear waters with so much life down below, twice the number of fish species in Sydney Harbour than the entire coastline of the United Kingdom, uh, it's really something. After John left the corporate world to follow his passion and help protect marine life, he didn't really know where to begin. He was diving and exploring the reef every chance he got, but he didn't really know how to turn that into conservation. So I thought, how do I tackle this? And um, 
having sort of come from that corporate world, I thought, well, I'll start a website, right? So I started Marine Explorer and I'd been taking photographs underwater, so I started publishing them. And I suppose the mission with Marine Explorer is just to show the world our marine life. So John became a citizen scientist. So I started just putting content out there about our marine life. A post every day on Facebook and Twitter and making little videos and putting them out there. And it just started to grow and more and more people started subscribing and liking the pages. I had a look the other day. We'd passed more than 2 million views on Flickr, which you think, okay, well, that's 2 million times that someone's looked at a photograph of something from under the water and maybe that adds up. But John didn't stop at taking pictures and posting videos. He got involved in as many projects as he could, and his citizen science finally started making a difference. It stands side by side with the rest of science. The way I see it, if you get a highly trained citizen scientist, and one of the projects that I've been working on for many years now is called Reef Life Survey, and basically when you do reef life surveys, you're doing a full scientific grade survey. And when we do those, the citizen scientists are gathering data of equal quality to what the scientists are doing. So we're often in the water with a scientist. They're doing one side of the tape, we're doing the other side. And because of the training that we do and so on, we're actually working with the same level of quality as that scientist in terms of species that we can identify and the data that we gather. So you can put citizen science and science next to each other if you've got well-trained and motivated people. And it's not just a one-way street anymore. Even though he started hoping to just help any way he could, John says the role of the public and the efforts of volunteers has now become paramount to the scientific method. The two of them need each other. Citizen scientists need scientists to be involved because we need to make sure that the projects are well designed and will go somewhere. Scientists need citizen scientists because there just aren't enough science hours in the day to gather the data that you need to draw conclusions. So if you team up with citizen scientists and you might have five or ten people helping you, you've now got ten times the data. You can reach a conclusion in a few months perhaps rather than maybe three years of your time. We talked about looking out at the harbour. Would you say that the harbour is better off because of these citizen scientists? I think one of the problems that the ocean has is out of sight, out of mind. We live on land as, as humans and so we look out over the water and if the surface of the water looks clean and if the colour of the water looks clean, we think it's in good shape, right? But when you go below the surface, you start to see a lot more. Of course, down there, under the surface, there are corals and there's kelp and there are many fish species and there are urchins. And keeping an eye on those and the relative proportions of them, is the kelp disappearing? Are the urchins starting to overwhelm the kelp? Are certain fish species disappearing that used to be in the harbour? You can't really tell that unless you get out there and have a look, particularly on scuba, but even just with snorkeling. And so once again, what citizen science does is it puts many more eyes out there. So without that, we wouldn't know the trends that we're observing now through, say, Reef Life Survey. We wouldn't have any idea of those trends. So I think it's definitely the case that citizen science helps us understand what's going on. So why do you think people do it? Why do you think people become citizen scientists? People want to make a difference. 
A lot of people are very frustrated by the poor treatment that we give to our environment and what do you do, right? If, you, if you're seeing a lot of plastic in the ocean or if you're seeing that fish numbers are declining or whatever it may be that you're observing, you can either just sit there and be frustrated or you can try and do something about it. Okay, what am I going to do? Well, I'll go and do a clean-up and I'll go and gather data on fish numbers or whatever the project may be because then people feel like they're doing something to make a, make a difference. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Miles Herbert. Coming up after the break, how citizen science helps scientists communicate with the public. You're listening to Think Sustainability from 2SER 107.3 and heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Miles Herbert. Well, we work on a marine microalgal species called Gambia discus, which produces a particular type of toxin. This is Shauna Murray from the Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney. She studies not just how toxins in algae might be impacting the ecosystem, but how they might be poisoning the food that we eat. And when it accumulates in large quantities, the toxin can get into the marine food chain and accumulate into smaller fish and then into larger fish. And then it can cause a type of human poisoning. Shauna wanted to find out how prevalent the poison was in a specific fish caught around New South Wales called the Spanish mackerel. But when she went to do research, there wasn't any data. We were wondering how we're going to get the fish specimens. That was our biggest question because that's not what we do. We're not, you know, people who go out and big fishing vessels and catch fish. You're not a fisherman? No. (laughs) And even if we were, for this kind of a project, we needed a really big comprehensive data set. So we needed as many samples as we could get, preferably more than 50, even better, more than 100 And even if we were very, very keen on fishing, we were out there every weekend, we were never going to get that many. So we just knew that we needed some help. So Shauna turned to people like John Turnbull, citizen scientists that were willing to help. We knew there was a community out there that were going out and were getting the fish. And if we could make contact with those people, they might be able to help us out. Shauna started meeting with the recreational and commercial fishing groups around Coffs Harbour and Byron Bay. She went from RSL Club to RSL Club, hoping to inspire the fishermen and women to get on board. It was a good match because they were also really interested in ciguatera fish poisoning because they obviously often eat the Spanish mackerel that they catch. So they wanted to know, were they safe to eat or were they not safe to eat? So we made up these little sample packs for the fishing groups and we included a sample guide that explained how to collect the fish and and where to measure the length from and where to get the the various different samples from. And it's very nice on waterproof paper. (laughs) So they could take it with them out when they go fishing. And we had another little page here that explained the whole reason for the project and how and what it all meant and what what a ciguatera toxin is. 
And then they had these little numbered tubes um, with this little waterproof paper where all they had to do was write the date and the size here with their pencil that they already had included. So we made it all nice and simple for them. Shauna says the response was amazing and she ended up getting even more data than she initially expected. Yeah, it was close to 80 samples. So actually 160 because we asked for flesh and liver samples from every fish that was caught. So that's, that's quite a huge effort, I think. It was mostly done by the recreational fishing community. Much better turnout from the recreational fishing community than the commercial fishers, actually. Would you have been able to do that on your own? There's no way we could have done that on our own. No way. So, yeah, it, it really was a great, great benefit to science that they did that. But Shauna and her team of scientists weren't the only ones who benefited. She says citizen science can sometimes kill two birds with one stone. The whole point of Shauna's study, the whole point of studying toxins in the Spanish mackerel, was to then educate the fishing groups who were catching and eating the fish on the potential poison. Shauna says involving them in the science helped communicate the results and potential dangers back to the wider fishing community. That's exactly it. We needed to reach out to that community anyway so that they could understand the risk of this disease. And um, if they were involved in the data collection, then we were actually getting emails almost as soon as we'd started the project from people saying, can you tell us the results? Can you tell us the results? And we're having to say, we're still analysing. <laughs> we haven't got there yet because um, people were so keen. And that that's fantastic. I've, I've You know, in all the scientific work that I've done over a number of years, I've never had just members of the public email me tell, saying, tell me what your results are. Eighty-five percent of Australians live within fifty kilometres of the coast, so we're you know we're a coastal nation in terms of our culture. We are back in the harbour with John Turnbull. John says that as our oceans and our world becomes more polluted and more damaged, he expects more people to take up the scientific mantle and become citizen scientists to help preserve our abundant coastlines. So that culture is is sort of in most of us in terms of kids' trips to the beach and so on. And so I, I think we do have a real love of the water and the beach and whatever it is that we do, kayaking and whatever the things that people do. So um, I think the idea that that could be declining really motivates people. Or go the other way, the idea that on a... You know, a few days a year, on the odd weekend, they can do something to help conserve that thing that they love, I think is quite motivating. This is Think Sustainability. Today's show was produced on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney, 2SER 107.3, and Heard Around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I've been Miles Herbert, and I'll catch you guys again next week.